0: This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and hope in sometimes difficult and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins, and today I have Miss, Mrs. Jenny Black And she lives outside of Nashville here, not far from where I am, her husband, Adam, and their two children. And she's a licensed counselor and therapist. And you may remember the name because I've had Jenny on the program before. This is, I don't know, Jenny, if this is your second time or third time on, I know during the pandemic, that series I had on mental health, I had you then. And maybe one time before that. So, so Jenny is a specialist in how current media experiences, the internet, our whole media environment, our culture of today affects human beings in the context of trauma. And I, I love her specialty and we've had, been having some fascinating conversations offline. And as a matter of fact, she and I are working on a, on a little project that we will tell you more about in the coming months. But for now, I wanna just touch and dig in today Because I think what you have to say and what we've been talking about and really what you've experienced in your own practice, Jenny, the past um, several years is so, so relevant uh, and it helps to bring context and an interesting perspective that's very helpful. And so, Jenny, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Bob.
0: I'm glad you're here. What are you working on today? You've got your books all open. Are those your notes?
1: I'm I'm today working on our project. So (laughs) it was, it was a productive day.
0: Good, 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 good. Well, Jenny, talk to me a little bit about what your practice has been, where you've chosen to focus your energy in the past couple of years.
1: Well, I, when I first became a marriage and family therapist, I was dealing with pretty traditional issues because most of us were dealing with pretty traditional issues. So people would have, maybe they were going through a divorce or a recent loss. And so they'd go to therapy for that, or they might've had some sort of traumatic experience that they were going to therapy for or childhood issues that they wanted to work through. And we kind of had this paradigm for how to work through these things. You know, we've been studying this for a long time now, and we have these different lenses and therapeutic techniques that we use to care for whatever the presenting need is. But about four years ago, five years ago, I started noticing that everyone was showing up with what, with symptoms of some version of PTSD Hmm. and they we would try to track them back. Like, Oh, what's, you know, what's the situation that happened or let's go back to your childhood. And they're just kept being, well, it's kind of my life today. Like I'm in a situation that feels overwhelming. The thing most people identify with is that hum of anxiety in the background or just kind of this over overarching sense of like grayness of You wouldn't necessarily say I'm depressed, but there's definitely some gloom and kind of through my own experiences, I, for myself, I was going through the same thing and started trying to put some boundaries in my life to just recover, to just have somewhat of a sabbatical for my own recovery. And in that noticed that almost all of the boundaries that I needed to set involved my phone. Mm. I didn't realize how much my phone had become this, this significant stressor in my life. Mm. I can keep talking forever. No, so no that's
0: <laughs> that's good. I mean, I'm standing here thinking about myself and you know, the world we live in, Jenny, is is certainly controlled by our technology to some degree. And I, in my own work, in my professional life, I talk and and deal in that as a marketer, as, as a digital strategist, et cetera. And so I see that in my own life. I see it in other people's life. I think one of the interesting things that that you've taken a step further is we all know that, okay, put your phone away when you sleep, try not to have it at the dinner table. you know, don't let your kids consume too much of it. We all know high level how that may not be a good thing. but I'd love to hear you expound a little bit more on, how you started to see this started intersecting with your work and talking to trauma survivors. I know your, your, your background is in obviously physical, sexual, maybe even religious or you know, whatever it may be, a trauma on some level. You, start, you started to see that intersect with media. When, when, when did you make that connection?
1: Gosh, that's such a good question. I am going to have to really dig deep to find that answer. I think probably it was just looking at the symptoms of PTSD. I think that's where I started seeing those symptoms and being like, huh, this is really PTSD. And so I started really seeing those symptoms with my kids. Mm. And that was probably the really big aha, because I knew their story. I I know what they have lived with and they shouldn't have been experiencing symptoms of PTSD. They'd had no trauma, no, Mm. as we say, big T trauma in their lives. And it just made me start unpacking how you have actually come up with the term of the micro traumas. Like what, what are micro traumas and could they be impacting us at such a level that we're looking like we have had trauma in our lives?
0: Yeah. You know, you and I have talked about this before is that first, I guess, before we get into that, define what is trauma. I feel like that is a word that is starting to be thrown around a lot. And like anything, when there's an awareness and awakening to the reality of an issue in a society, it becomes abused, right? So, you know, everyone can say, oh, I'm traumatized. Right. And it's nothing Mm -hmm. to laugh about, but let's define Mm -hmm. it first so that we know that we're talking about this. That's a
1: great point. And, And I will say I've very much hesitated using this word the way that it's used because of that, because in working with trauma survivors, they are not victims of the trauma that they experienced. They are true survivors and it, you know, People who survive trauma, which all of us have and will in our life, there's, it's not something that you curl up in a corner and just say, I'm traumatized like, and, and use it as an excuse for, for anything. In fact, it's a huge source of resilience and strength for all of us, but I'm trying to remember, I was just writing about this today. So I'm trying to remember from memory, the definitions of trauma that I looked up. I found the first the first time was in the 1800s that trauma was defined and it was when someone has two levels of consciousness that something some incident happens that makes them have two different layers, two distinct layers of consciousness. And I found that just really fascinating because in have, having to live in the real world and in our digital spaces those are really two separate levels of consciousness. So that by itself was fascinating to me. We now are actually required to learn the skill sets to live in two different levels of consciousness, which is a symptom of trauma. So I just find that fascinating. That's kind of a little mind puzzle to me. The second definition was of a psychologist who worked with Shell Shocked, World War I soldiers and that's what it was called at that point in time. And he said, this is a, an entirely, entire, entirely understandable response to unfathomable circumstances. Like you were in a situation that you could in no way handle respond to it was overwhelming. And so this is what the mind and the body does in response to overwhelming situations. And then the third one was a very recent definition of complex trauma. This was from 2009. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. It talks about how complex trauma is when you lose your ability to self-regulate, to look to your relationships for self identity to like lean into those relationships be like oh yeah that's who I am and one other thing that I can't but it was like it was like self-identity and self like your ability to tap into your own resources to solve your problems
0: that's interesting and and in the classic sense when you think of you know going back to world War one when those men were in the trenches and bombs were going off they didn't know if the bomb was going to go off right on top of them at the next moment, or they would wake up and they would, you know, there would be a bomb next to them. If they would live to see the morning light. I mean, that's understandable stress, anxiety, fear for your life. And that trauma is understandable. And certainly I think most people at least objectively can say, yeah, I can see how that can really mess with your head and totally like that's, such a stressful environment that it can have long-term effects. But what you are fa- what you found and what you're saying is the effects of being shell-shocked, of men going through a war and um, experiencing that years and years later when certain sounds would go off or they would get into certain environments or being woken up too fast, their brains are still living in that reality, like right. you said. They never... They could never get out of that reality on one level and it's mostly subconscious, but you found a lot of the same things and other types of trauma, whether it be, you know, someone watching something on the screen, that's very traumatic because help me understand this a little bit and let's ex- unpack it. Your brain doesn't know the difference, right? So if you see something that's happening real time or something that's, that's, very graphic, maybe, or violent or disturbing through your eyes, your brain processes it. What goes on and what happens inside of our human brain when when we digest that?
1: (laughs) You think I am much smarter than I actually am. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's important that the reason that using the trauma word is definitely bringing attention to this new way that we experience life and information can be experienced traumatically. And at the same time, it is a different type of care than you would give to someone who'd been in the kind of trauma of a war or an assault. So I do want to make sure to, to distinguish that. But when you, when you experience a a trauma in real time, You have so much, you have this body that has all of these senses way beyond even just our five senses that's taking in this whole experience. Mm. Like I did this one training with a group of people who actually do trauma work on people in active war zones. So they're in the war zone doing the Mm. trauma work. They're not where most of us are dealing with it after the, after it's happened (laughs) And one of the things that they said is that they will sit with people like say that bomb does go off. So they're in those, those areas and they will be like, look at the sky, look at the sky, notice the weather today. Like these things that are how you assimilate and make sense and orient your body and your brain towards this terrible thing or disruptive Mm -hmm. thing that happened. So I think that the way that we have survived trauma and recovered from trauma to up until this point in history is that our bodies were doing a lot of work for us that we weren't even aware of. The most popular one is, you know, Mr. Rogers quote after September 11th, or his mom said, always look for the helpers. Well, when you are in real time, you get to see that you get to see the people who were helping you get to see The good contrasting with the bad or the, the outpouring of love, or even the physical effect, the physical experience of screaming or running or holding somebody, it all tells our body, this happens and gives us space to process what's happened when we are experiencing those same things on through our devices. Most of the time we're alone. We're, we're in a, usually a safe place. Where we're seeing something that is really disturbing that's happening to someone else or somewhere else. And we have no other experience of anything but the trauma. It's almost like the trauma gets served up to us in this condensed form without any of the other context that actually allows our body, mind, and community to process what happens. So it's not that this terrible thing has happened to us, like that I've watched this thing and I've seen it and now I'm traumatized. It's that it has nowhere to go. It has nowhere or way to process through me. So my body and my brain just start storing up these traumatic events or things I've seen or heard and they get built up in what you, you would call with those little micro traumas that just keep building up until all of a sudden I'm just anxious. I just think the world is a scary place to be. I don't want to be in it wow, I'm depressed. What difference does my life make with all of this terrible stuff that's happening? It becomes a narrative that's bigger than my actual human real life experience.
0: Yeah. One of the things that you and I have been talking quite a bit about is under. it's important to understand what you just explained and that 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 is happening and it does happen to us regularly. And maybe we can get to some of the effects and and maybe ways to notice and to see if you can, you know, start to analyze yourself or your kids and, and and what's some practical steps. But before we get there, I think it's really important for the context of this podcast and the things that really help us to put some skin on the bones is what is the framework and understanding and, you know, what's the context for which we as humans right now living in 2021 get sucked into us because almost all of us do unless you're living on an island with no technology you really do and and it it's what psychologists and sociologists you know call bias we all have bias and we all are see the world through our own lenses and it's and it's these certain biases that we see the world that many times cause us to be drawn to engage to go with a certain tribe to lean and make assertions and world world judgments on the state of the world whether it be politics whether it be religion whether it be our own community our ethnocentric history all of those things come from a certain bias and it's really helpful for me to understand and know that when i start going down the rabbit holes that we call them of certain videos or YouTubes or, or articles or Instagram feeds or, or other things, we really do get sucked into those algorithms through our own biases. And so I think it's really helpful to, to maybe call some of those out. I mean, there's confirmation bias, there's, there's many others, but in your work and as you've been studying this, and I know we've talked about it quite a bit, what are you seeing? So for instance, you know, going back to September 11th, going, then going forward to some of these horrendous school shootings to even what we saw in the last election and, and, and the, the January 6th incident here in, in the United States, it's real interesting that those events can be very traumatizing to the people, to us consuming them, obviously the people that were there, but even the people that are watching real time and then how we interpret those through our own lens and biases and continue to replay them in our own alternate realities whatever they may be i know i just threw a lot out there but what what are some thoughts on any, any of that that i just that i just threw out
1: well first of all i'm very very thankful for you for bringing this this language to me and you've really educated me a lot about the the concept of confirmation bias i think that I think that your awareness of that is such a testimony to your your own work and your own journey of of not wanting to be blind to to who you really are or who I really am. So I've, don't I don't got really a lot of own, to do. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? But I really so I really appreciate that. So you you have much more to say about that than I do. But I feel like what it what it triggers for me is just that what we call in therapy, the drama triangle. And the drama triangle is kind of in, in the world of healthy relationships. You don't want to get stuck in the drama triangle. It's what keeps you from having healthy relationships. And the drama triangle means you always have to be in one of three positions. You either are the victim, you're the perpetrator, or you're the rescuer. And you don't get to pick which of those that you get to be and you don't get to pick anything else. Those 3 are the only option. And just as you were talking about our the, the individualized particular news feed that I receive versus the one that you receive is very tailored to what I want to see, what I already believe. And we might even think we believe the same and I guarantee you we look at our news feeds and see something <laughs> the algorithms know better than we do. See something different. And I do believe that one of the inherent, I don't even know if the word's dysfunction, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but it is inherent in the virtual space is that you, it kind of puts you into that drama triangle. And so that, that's going to mean my feed is going to show me how I'm being victimized, how, I, who is perpetrating me, it might even point out how, how I'm perpetrating others like that I was thinking we, we are hooked by what we like, but we're also hooked by seeing what we hate. Like, oh, see, I knew that was out there. And then our very best attempts are to try to become the rescuer. <laughs> like that's the very best we can do online is how can I do some good here, which I, I know that you have felt and everyone I know has felt like, how do I not get stuck? I'm not a victim here. I'm not the perpetrator. And then quickly you're in that position of rescuer. You're going to get, you're going to get victimized because that's all a part of how the energy goes that keeps people, that is what keeps people hooked. So I don't know if that answers your question or if you have more thoughts about that. No, that's
0: good. That's good. Let's get practical and give some examples. What, what does it look like for someone, let's say your your kids, to be sucked into something that is traumatic? You gave the example of, of during the whole ISIS thing and the beheadings that were on the internet, and I guess are still there for all I know. I personally have chosen not to watch that, but there is something that is drawing and pulling to so many people to say, and especially I can see this in adolescent kids and teenagers and just be like, Oh, I, what is this strange, crazy thing? And it, I remember at that age for me, and yet I still know some adults who might find that curious. And I want to see this. I need to see this. Talk about that example Mm -hmm. and how that was kind of a moment for you that you realized that there's this community aspect that takes place.
1: Yes. So what you're speaking to is me overhearing my son and his friends who did not know I was listening, um, asking who had watched the ISIS beheadings. And I, like, I just kind of remember this, this rip of, I don't know, kind of felt like being struck by lightning in my, in my mom heart because I had somewhat been prepared for, oh, pornography and drugs and you know, like all of those things that we thought we were going to deal with. And this, this felt like a level of, wow. I mean, that to me is probably one of the most purest examples of a traumatic media experience. And they were talking about it casually because it's, it was just in their feed. It was, I think it was in their Twitter feed. And as we've you know, talked about the difference between digital natives and di- digital immigrants, I actually think I don't want to see that. I don't need to see that. That will be bad for me. But if we had been exposed the way that they have been exposed, we would have been asking the same questions. It, it would have been a viable, like, yeah, that's what you do because you want to stay informed and you want to know what everybody's talking about. We have, I did have an adolescent middle school boy who, not my son, but a student that I knew about who his mom didn't know what had happened to him. He was, he was showing all the symptoms of extreme, you know, some traumatized event had happened and he had been to a sleepover and they all watched the beheadings together at the sleepover. And so that was his named isolated traumatic event. It's really important and somewhat helpful, actually. Although I, I of course, wish that this information wasn't shared with children and also that they didn't share it with each other. And yet it's a really appropriate way to handle a traumatic event. So it's, it's a way that kids are able to say, I can't carry this alone. I can't process this alone. I'm not really sure how to handle it. So I want to see how another kid processes it and handles it. And then at least we can be going through this together. So it's it's going to keep happening because that's the way we stay sane as humans is to find other humans to have a shared experience with.
0: And there is something, you know, before we get into some, some real practical ways to, first of all, acknowledge if ourselves or our loved ones might be dealing with some of these emotions and feelings that actually are related to either micro traumas through the media or something bigger than that. Before we get to that, though, there is this shared commune. I don't know if it's called communal trauma or whatever, where in the environment of your son's friends, whether it was him or his friend who initially saw it, there's this need to connect with other human beings, as you said, to share in that what they don't even realize is to share in that trauma, meaning this affected me in a way that I don't know how to explain. I want you to watch it and see if it affects you the same way, because I need to know that my reaction is not abnormal and probably consciously or unconsciously. That's what they were communicating. Correct.
1: I I believe that. And I would guess most of that was not conscious.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so then they're all watching it. And like you said, they're sitting around at a sleepover talking about, Oh my gosh, did you see that? And I'm just trying to put myself in those shoes as a, as a boy, that age, obviously you want to be cool. You don't want to act, you don't want to cry about it for sure. You know, and again, depending on the environment, how they're raised, who they are, that that has different range, but that type of, of traumatic, horrendous thing that they watched and consumed their brains, and really nobody's brains, are really prepared Correct. for that, right?
1: Correct.
0: And I think what we're getting at with the media trauma, as I understand, and you've written about this, and I know you speak about it, is we somehow think that was just on the internet. I can turn it off. Now I'm going on to listen to my favorite podcast or you know, so many people that I know on the January 6th event at the White House or at the Capitol like for days after that, I would talk to friends and family members. I'm just so sad. I just found myself crying. I just, you know, is that what was going on there as well? I,
1: I absolutely, and of course, it, it is also the cumulative effect of the year that we've all been through, and that the media has had a huge role in. I do, something I do really want to talk about that I have, I am seeing happen in the digital natives. And that is that in order to adjust, you know, adjust our, to function, right? These, they, these kids were watching those ISIS beheadings in the middle of a really great school environment in the middle. They're, they're getting three meals a day. They, they have really healthy, good lives, and yet had these things that were traumatic within and kind of hidden inside of it. So just, just even imagining what, what people are processing and going through no matter what it seems like on the outside, but specifically with kids is you, you don't know the kind of stuff they're trying to organize when you're wondering why are they having problems learning how to read? You don't know that they might have had their first sexually predatory experience on a video game that weekend. So I, there are so many stories like that, that it's just important when you start seeing symptoms of PTSD, I think it's worth looking up. And if you're seeing them in yourself or in your children, start with, okay, have you seen something Most, most kids really want to tell somebody what they've seen. And they're also really afraid to tell their parents because one, they don't want to lose their privileges Two, they really don't want their parents to know the bad thing that happened to them. Like it's almost this kid protecting the parent from this bad thing. But what I have seen happen in kids is that it is a loss of, it's not a loss of empathy, it's a detachment from empathy. So I can't, what I just saw was so painful. If I can, if I can convince myself that really wasn't that big of a deal or that's not my business or that if I can detach myself from my emotions, then I won't be in pain. Right. And that I think is a lot of, Oh, but now I've detached from empathy. Now it's hard for me to have empathy when in real life I see something happen to someone or to re-engage in empathy when I do have the resources to do something about it.
0: Yeah. How do how does one know that? What are some of those symptoms? What are the symptoms of, I don't know why I've been feeling this way, but I've got all this weird stuff going on. What are what are some symptoms to know? You know, there might be some whether it's micro trauma or, or obvious yeah. blatant trauma, yeah. how, how does, how does one identify that?
1: Well, it, it does become a little cloudy this year because I would say what we have experienced as a, as a culture, as a world has brought about these symptoms though. I need to have a little disclaimer there. So we're talking about depression that doesn't have a specific situation that you can connect to it at anger. That's, that is, the situation happens and there is some sort of expression of anger that doesn't match the situation at hand, not being able to sleep using uh, drugs or alcohol or some behavior to escape on a regular basis. I can't, can you think of any more from that list? I don't have it in front of me.
0: Yeah. I don't have it in front of me either, but I, I think these are these are really good. Constant irritability. These are all things that, that certainly are normal to the human condition. But if you find that they're prolonged and you can't shake them and you see them in, in other people, I think this is a part of the time we're living in. Obviously, we all get a pass with, with COVID and the right. pandemic. But it but also This is go ahead.
1: Well, this is the what I wanted to say. I think that it's very easy to look at those symptoms right now and say, well, of course I feel that way. Look what we've all been through. And I do want to tell a story about one of my coworkers who last year at this time was going through a pretty severe depression and her life was really good. Like circumstantially life was good. We weren't in a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. This year, she has been through a tremendous amount of very specific and personal traumas in addition to the global ones that all of us have experienced together. And it, it really became so bad that she deleted all of her social media and was like, I'm done. I can't watch the news. I can't. I can't look at social media anymore. And this year, which I could list everything from job losses to family members being severely ill to complications from our current (laughs) political culture. And she said she is having zero symptoms of depression and zero anxiety. So even though it would have been so easy to say, of course I'm feeling depressed and anxious now because look at what's happened in life. She said she was more depressed and anxious staying connected to her social media feed than she is now when her life actually is that would warrant those levels of those feelings.
0: What she's saying is her digital connection was more trauma-inducing and stressful than the trauma-inducing stressful things in real life, which I think could, again, this is, this is just anecdotally being an analyst, armchair analyst saying, could it be that those constant, daily moment by moment, micro impressions, some of them traumatic, some of them not, but building up, building up, building up and your body not knowing how to react. Whereas in the real life, in the real world, when something happens, you can see it, you can identify it and you can respond and fight or flight or freeze, but maybe it's not so easy in the online world possibly. Is that Is there there a connection there?
1: Yes, I, I believe what you said, excuse me, absolutely is true. One thing we haven't talked about is that real life, while it also, while it contains trauma, it also contains the resources for healing from that trauma. So a lot of times, yes, we may have had this traumatic experience in real life or in our digital spaces, or just getting exposed to that continual feed. It's not just the content, it's the fact that real life has the solutions for us. It has it has the space for us to you know go to our inner resources or our community resources and process and heal and deal with the problems. So much of our virtual spaces is, is the problem, but then we also go to it for the solution and we're not going to find the solutions there. We're not going to find, you know, I may be able to find, find a tribe that believes the same as me, but I will have to engage something in my real life to solve this problem that I've become aware of through, you know, media. So I do, I feel like, I, I feel like, well, in, in therapy, we always talk about there's the process and there's the content. And so we've been talking today a lot more about the content of, of what you're watching And how that can start to to change your view of the world and your experience of humanity and yourself. But it's really important, the process itself, that's kind of the relentless, I spend more time aware of what is wrong in the world and what is wrong with me and what is wrong with you, than I do get to spend time actually being a person, being a human
0: what are those mechanisms? So for instance, you, you have cited in the past, I believe it was a study. Maybe you could just talk about it again. Cause it it was one of the things that first drew me into your work was the Boston marathon bomber a few years back. Can you talk about that? Yeah.
1: So they did some research on the people who um, attended who were actually at the bombing and compared it to people who had experienced the bombing through social media. And they found that the people who'd experienced it through social media had actually had more symptoms of trauma than the people that were there. And so that's a really fun, like, wow, why would that be? You know, it makes you put on your thinking cap and say, huh, wow. When, when you're actually at a place where something happens, you don't always have a front row seat to it. There's, There's only so many people who have a front row seat to the actual trauma. Then there's these like, you know, layers of people out. I heard this. I saw this. I, you know, I saw people respond. So this, this goes back to that full body experience of the situation. And it also puts it in perspective. Like I I actually saw that the sun was still shining when the bomb happened. So again, our, all of these amazing human senses are somehow able to organize that information and be like, the world keeps on turning, even though this bad thing happened. Look at all those people who are still breathing, who we, we know that when we're watching it on social media, we are getting that front row seat, which I've never met a person who's had a front row seat to a real life trauma, who would ever want to share that with anyone else. Many, many trauma survivors have said, have even had a hard time telling me their therapist about the story because they don't want me to witness what they've witnessed. So it's not, it's not really humane to want to share a front row seat of trauma with everybody in the whole world, right? Because you need, you need me to not be traumatized if it's your front row seat time, because you need people who care for you and take care of you. And when it's my front row time, I need a community that hasn't been traumatized by my trauma to care for me. And yet the way that we're experiencing this, we're all just getting front row seats, front row seats to trauma all the time. And then not having the resources to care for each other the way that we would, if it had happened in real time.
0: That's a great point. That's a great point. It's almost like you're, Body and your um, environment can bring about the, I don't know if the right word is healing, but proper response to that that leads to healing. And when you're in the environment, you can run away. You can go help the person that's hurt. You can hide under a chair. You can, you know, tell people it's going to be okay. Like you said, there's lots of ways that you can respond to what you've consumed in your eyes and your ears. In your feelings your senses I guess but then when you watch it online you're on to the next thing right so you never your body never knows okay what am I how am I supposed to respond and I know you and I have both listened and read a recent book out there's a couple of them that talk about they're learning and finding more and more that our bodies our emotions and our reactions our stressors our traumas are so tightly and in, intrinsically connected to our bodies than they are just our brains, right? So it's why we can study other mammals and animals and see you know, how they respond when they're being pursued by a predator or they escape from a bad situation or they're recovering from injury. There's a lot of bodily engagements there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, well, as it, I, as it pertains to, to the whole idea of media trauma.
1: Yeah, so you're referencing um, a, a pretty new book out called Burnout, and I can't remember the name of the authors right off the top of my head, but they their work is so important because you know stress is it's all on how we process stress, and what, what you were just saying if if I've watched something. And I say to myself, that wasn't real. That shouldn't stress me out, right? It it didn't actually happen to me. That doesn't work because my body has had a physical response to the stress. I, I have been activated in some way. And these authors do such an amazing job of distinguishing the stress versus the stressor. So, which is really stress is the mildest form of trauma. It's like extreme stress is what we would define as trauma. So the more that we learn as humans in this new reality that we live in, we may have these, you know, little micro stressors happening all the time. And we tend to say to ourselves, that shouldn't stress me out and then move on to the next little stressor until one day we can't see (laughs) my, my husband, discovered a new level of what stress could do to the body several years ago, during a, a time that was too stressful to repeat. He woke up the next morning and his, he looked in the mirror and his eyes weren't tracking. His eyes were going opposite directions. And it was terrifying. We're in the emergency room and they finally concluded after all of the tests, have you been under a great deal of stress lately? like your body will absolutely show up with some very bizarre things when you have not when you have not given your chance to process the stress. So we tend to spend a lot of energy fixing the stressor, managing the stressor, if I could just make that thing stop stressing me out, then my stress is taken care of. But what this book is communicating is that that stress became mine the second that I had a physical reaction to the stressor, And at that point, I may or may not be able to do anything about the stressor, but I absolutely have to do something to process the stress. And so this goes back to like, what can we do about this? I would say almost all of the things we do to process stress probably need to happen, not on a screen. And that isn't to say that there aren't some things, there are some great meditation apps or, you know, maybe FaceTiming a friend to hash out whatever it is that we need to process. But the most important thing that we need to do is get back inside of our bodies. And that is a very hard thing for our bodies to do when we're on a screen, because we're kind of in two different places. And not being on a screen gives our minds a chance to get into the same physical space as our body. The, the number one thing to do is some sort of physical movement. I've been, I was having this image of working in a kindergarten class and just seeing how fidgety kindergartners are all the time and just thinking they're brilliant. They're doing exactly what, what we are now trying. We've unlearned that we shouldn't be fidgety. And now we're like, no, you need to be fidgety. Like that kind of stuff is what gets energy out of our body. So physical movement, creativity, any kind of artistic expression, laughter, crying, obviously sleeping is a huge thing where our, our minds and our bodies are very, very tired and do need a great deal of rest.
0: Well, the thing, the first thing that comes to mind is These are the exact same things that we train our children not to do and to grow out of. Don't cry. Don't fidget. Be still. Stop laughing. Pay attention. It's really amazing that, that we're really training. We have trained in the, maybe the modern world and in the environment, industrial nation and whatever it may be, we can analyze all day, but really getting back to, allowing ourselves to feel and to react. And depending on how you're brought up and what environment, what culture, that can be a real challenge. And for others, it's, it can be very natural and it might be why some of us do do suffer from physical ailments and stomach issues and bodily issues. And some of us maybe don't again, definitely don't want to, don't want to overanalyze that, but what are some practical things as we are getting into this kind of phase in the last part of the podcast what are some practical things that we can do first of all to recognize that it might be happening and secondly to minimize it in our homes and in our own lives
1: Yeah I definitely think if you have if you have young children whose lives are not dependent on you know screens and you are seeing symptoms of any of any of those PTSD symptoms in your child definitely start with screen free time and see what I often tell parents is symptoms usually get worse before they get better because screens tend to numb, numb us from our feelings and, you know, can, can be so all consuming and absorbing that we're not feeling them. So, there of course are underlying issues, but you won't be able to see what those underlying issues are until they have time away from screens. So I do, I would really challenge people to, if you are having any of these symptoms consider even just giving yourself one day. That's when, when my kids get in their cycles, I'll say just 24 hours, just give yourself 24 hours to be completely analog and see what resets in your body, see what new things that you see. So that's number one, try 24 hours without a screen. However, you can do that. Number two, something I do all the time is make my screen black and white, even just the, the way that I can sort of, my sensory system can sort of calm down and not have to be so perceptive is really helpful turning any kind of online connection you have into a real life connection is very empowering the the loneliness that we are feeling as a culture is it's just getting wider and deeper and being able to see oh this is somebody i i love to follow on instagram and actually say you know instant messaging that person and saying hey can we schedule a phone call this week and watching Oh my gosh, these relationships, they could be real and they could be meaningful to me. And having that one-on-one connection in non, what, non-filtered spaces, unfiltered spaces is incredibly healing for us. We, we need so little <laughs> to, we're, we're made to heal. We're made to recover. We, it's in our DNA to be resilient. It's the reason we're still on the planet right now. And if we get what we need, we will feel it. We will feel those results of, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to like waking up in the morning and to see color outside and to have that thought. I think being a human is a wonderful thing. And I think living in this world, I think this world is a beautiful place. Like that's, that's when, you know, you've made it, you've made it through to the other side of that stressor
0: that's a great point. I mean, (laughs) we could probably do a whole nother show of seeing the world as a beautiful place. You know, I think that what we've gone through in the pandemic, what we've gone through as a country, what we've gone through as a world with many times what we see in media and social media and the news is the world is not a beautiful place. It's a scary place And let me prove to you why it's a scary place. Here's all the scary things. I mean, that alone sounds so basic and and even childlike. But really, if we find ourselves in a place and getting back to the whole bias issue where we do see the world through the lens of things are getting worse, someone's going to come take my stuff, the wrong political party is going to get voted in that will be a disaster. And whatever it may be, that's when you know, maybe, maybe you're being the victim of, of, of some sort of trauma. That's a result of the media that you're consuming or the way that you're looking through at the media, through the algorithm that they've fed you. And it just, like you said, take a 24 hour break, see how your body responds, see how your mind responds, see if you start to see the world in a different light. So
1: Well, this brings me to one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked, which was by you when you said, if I, if I were an alien who knew everything I knew about psychology and I came to planet earth now, and I was interviewing someone who was talking like that, like you just said, the world is scary. Everything's getting worse. You asked me what would I think was going on with them psychologically? And I said, I would think they were being abused and that, that is what someone feels like when they are in an oppressive abused relationship. And I think it's very, very important to remember one, if you are feeling that way, that's a great thing to become aware of and talk to people about. But second of all, to, to really pay attention is anyone benefiting from me feeling this way is is this serving any greater system to, for me to to be scared and for me to be to stay completely tuned into 24/7 news, news feeds
0: well <laughs> you can open a can of worms with that one is who is benefiting from me feeling this way wow that that's a great way that's a great way to think about if, if we can just have that little bit of self-awareness to know that when I'm feeling blue, scared, the world is caving in on me, who's benefiting from that, from my consuming? Who's giving me those messages? And it's easy to point fingers at you know the media and the news or in a relationship, it's obvious, it's the abuser in that situation or the one that wants to be in control. And yet I think there's, There's a, a system in place that many of us don't realize is that we put ourselves in those positions daily, When we take out our phone, when we, when we swipe left or right up or down, when we get sick and I do it all the time, I get sucked into the whole first thing. When I wake up in the morning, I turn, roll over, grab my phone. Okay. What's going on in the news today? Who's sent me an email late at night? What do I have on my calendar? And before I know it, you know, 20 minutes is gone. And I have consumed several things that are are benign, are helpful, and might be questionable micro traumas of, oh my gosh, this is horrendous. It's going on in this country, or, you know, a perspective on a bias of an interpretation of, of someone's text or whatever it may be. It's really helpful. It's really helpful to think through those things and to have some kind of an awareness. So anything else you would say as far as tips?
1: I think, I just think that time, time is everything. So if, if you can't control the content that you're watching, maybe you can control the amount of time you're watching it and give yourself as much time in your real world as possible to, to find the resources and, and your own experience to get to be, to live your own life.
0: That's so good. Well, Jenny, as always, this has been a fascinating talk. How can people f- learn more about media trauma? I know you've written on it. Some you still, you know, you do podcasts and, and other speaking events. If someone wants to learn more about your work, where would they go?
1: You can visit mediatrauma.com and on media Tra- on mediatrauma.com. There's also a link for our little handbook, how to be human in a digital world that um, you can purchase from there.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jenny, as always, it's been great. We'll continue this discussion in the future and we'll keep working on our ideas and thoughts and who knows, maybe, maybe there's something that will be coming out of this soon. So we'll, we'll, we'll stay in touch.
1: Thanks so much, Bob.
0: All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.